Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. I'm delighted today to be joined by two friends, Kate Dotson, Vice President for Global Health Strategy at the UN Foundation, and Nellie Bristol, who's a senior associate with us at the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. She's also an independent analyst and researcher. Welcome, Kate and Nellie. Thank you for joining us. We're here to really reflect on what happened at the UN General Assembly last week. So welcome and thank you so much for making time. Our pleasure, Steve. Great to be with you and great to be with you, Nellie. Great to be with you both as well. So let's start with the high-level meetings in the health sector. The high-level meetings on health touched on tuberculosis, on universal health coverage, and on pandemic preparedness and response. This was unprecedented to have three of these in a single UN General Assembly meeting. That raises all sorts of issues around, is that a wise course to bundle that much focus in a single session? Does it have payoffs? Does it have disadvantages, et cetera? We also had, obviously, many, many other huge issues on the table at the UN General Assembly, which is not atypical. So, Kate, I'm going to ask you, you were deeply involved at many different levels at observing what was happening. Why don't you paint the big picture for us around UNGA and how it unfolded, and then give us sort of some of the top-line takeaways around the high-level meetings on the health sector, what was notable, what was surprising, and the like. And then we'll ask Nellie, who was also up observing the Pandemic Preparedness and Response high-level meeting and has written a terrific piece for us that we'll be posting shortly on her reflections on that. So over to you, Kate. Give us the big picture and get things rolling for us. Sure, Steve, and great to have this conversation and this opportunity. As you kind of set out at the start, this was a pretty unprecedented year for health in the UN General Assembly high-level week with three mandated high-level meetings. It was in a very busy week. Last week, there were nine mandated high-level processes happening at the UN. That in and of itself was unprecedented. And I think that's a sign of the times, a sign of the fact that member states are grappling, especially since the COVID pandemic, with a range of collective action challenges requiring solutions. Foremost among them, what member states talked about a lot last week was the kind of lack of progress on the Sustainable Development Goals. The COVID pandemic itself was a break on SDG progress. We've only gotten 14% of the SDGs on track to be met by 2030, and we're at the halfway point. So that was a real big theme of last week, a sense of urgency, a need for action, and some real common policy themes that member states and heads of states and government brought to New York when thinking not only about the health issues, but about where and how the world is off track generally. Member states, I think, brought a spirit of unity of purpose and urgency to those conversations, but were not 
afraid to lift up areas of real divergence in how they see the world and where they see the solutions need to be met. Financing, for instance, is one of those common themes that cut across the three health high-level meetings, but also on the Climate Ambition Summit, on the SDGs, countries especially, poorest countries decrying the lack of fiscal space to accelerate progress on the SDGs or on the health-related goals um, and the health-related objectives of the three high-level meetings. So that was kind of one place that that manifest. But overall, I think it was a productive week. The UN gaveled in and approved all of its mandated processes that wasn't foregone at the beginning of the week. So I think that was actually an accomplishment and it sets a new floor. And across the three high-level meetings, across with the SDG Summit and elsewhere, it creates kind of wind and sails for for national level progress, national level accountability, which is really a major part of what these high level meetings are intended to do, galvanize and stimulate national progress and national accountability to the goals and targets set out in a multilateral forum like the UN. So can you just give us a quick summary looking at the three high-level meetings? You know, what was notable around those three? I take your point. The SDG visitation at this halfway point was a very, very sobering moment. And that got reported widely. And people didn't spare their honesty around how far behind things are at this halfway point and what that may mean. Then you had these other three high-level meetings on health, all of which tie together to SDGs. So they're all connected to one another. But just give us a quick overview on those three, and then let's hear from Nellie. Sure. So on Wednesday, heads of state and delegations from member states talked about pandemics, prevention, preparedness, and response. Thursday, they talked about universal health coverage. And Friday, they talked about tuberculosis. There are a couple of common themes, both in what we heard from member state interventions and what we see in the political declarations for those three meetings, including financing, which I already mentioned, the need for renewed and stimulated financing, the imperative of equity driven, human rights-centered, people-centered approaches came through resoundingly. In the context of those health meetings, we heard a lot about the need to accelerate progress on primary care as a pathway for realizing, frankly, all three of the ambitions on those three different related goals. And related to that, doubling down on investment in health workforce, including kind of a more gender equitable health workforce. So those are common threads across. We heard a lot about access to medicines, technology transfer, intellectual property, research and development, again, across all those three issues. For pandemics, what we heard also from member states was first kind of a a commitment out loud, kind of mutual accountability to advancing the work that's happening in Geneva on negotiating a pandemic accord and amendments to the international health regulations. We heard from member states reflections on kind of whole of society impacts of pandemics, kids out of school, kind of losing ground on fiscal space for all development issues, and the importance of addressing those solutions, not just solutions that relate specifically to the health sector. So those were important contributions in the pandemic high-level meeting. In universal health coverage, we heard a lot about the lack of progress overall on UHC, right? WHO and the World Bank released a really important global monitoring report at the beginning of last week on kind of the state of universal health coverage. Half of all people around the world, 4.5 billion people, lack reliable access to essential health services 
2 billion people are pushed into poverty or further into poverty each year trying to meet their healthcare needs, paying it out of pocket. And that lack of progress predated the COVID pandemic. It was made worse by the COVID pandemic, but it predated it. Right. In two decades, only a third of countries have made any appreciable progress on those two key indicators, access to essential health services and financial protection for people trying to pay for health services. That's why there was a high level meeting on UHC. That's why member states spent so much time in their interventions talking about how they need to accelerate those gains over the next second half of the SDGs. On tuberculosis, that political declaration had a higher degree of kind of tangible targets, financial targets, coverage targets for reaching people, especially vulnerable populations with TB prevention treatment and services. And so we heard some of that, some of that kind of tangible manifestation of commitment in the TB high-level meeting that happened on Friday. Yes. And that seemed to be, in the TB side of things, also a sort of elevated interest in the whole generation of new therapies and better diagnostics, which was a source of some encouragement. Nellie, how did you see the PPR, the Pandemic Preparedness and Response high-level meeting? How did you see the outcome there? Right. Well, thanks, Steve. I think there was acknowledgement that there are things that are bubbling along. The Geneva negotiations are ongoing, a little bit fraught, it sounds like, but they're ongoing. And there are efforts to increase actual capacities for pandemic preparedness and response that are ongoing. Maybe not to the level that a lot of people would like to see, but there are things happening on that level. I think that the biggest disappointment for a lot of people was that this high-level meeting was an opportunity to really pull together multi-sectoral action on this. This pandemic hit every aspect of society, every person, every economy. So I think even just having it considered as part of the health high-level meetings was a bit of a disappointment to some people because they think this should actually be not just health. It should be considered differently because it is so multi-sectoral and so broad-based. So I think there was disappointment that there wasn't more specific action related to that. Like, how do you cut across the UN? How do you get more UN agencies who have constituencies who were hard hit by the pandemic? How do you get them involved? Where are their voices in all of this? And even if this is supposed to be something that leads to more national effort in this regard, even on the U.S. level, what are the mechanisms for pulling agencies together to deal with this problem, which does affect everybody? And these are expected to happen again, as everyone's says, will not be our last pandemic, but we need to instigate the preparedness now to deal with it. And how do we get it out of the health sector and across sectors? And what are the mechanisms for that? This was considered to be one of those opportunities, and it was considered to be a missed opportunity. So what's next? It puts a lot of pressure on the Geneva negotiations to not only deal with some of the virus-specific things that they need to do and accountability and equity and vaccine distribution and all of that, but also what role can it play in elevating and what role can WHO play in elevating this issue to a higher plane and to attract more attention and resources? And so that's really kind of the open question after this. Yeah, thank you. There was quite a bit of loud criticism, disappointment, indignation around the outcomes, particularly around the pandemic preparedness and response high-level meeting There's a question there about, was that realistic or not? Were expectations too high about what these meetings will deliver? In the past, when there have been high-level meetings, there's been, in some levels, excess 
expectations about what comes. These meetings do deliver some things, but they're part of a broader process of change, of normative change, of programmatic, of priorities. Kate made the very good point that these are really meant to galvanize nations to do things for themselves. Say a bit about the wider environment of criticism around this. Kate, say a bit and then over to Nellie around the response among the advocates and the media observers and folks that were writing editorials in this period. Kate? Well, I'm a fan of using analogies and sometimes stretching them a little too far, but one can think about these high-level meetings as the kind of finish line where things should be announced, finished. One can think about them as the starting gun or somewhere in the middle where the baton is passed from one kind of process to another or one chapter to the next. And we did a piece over the summer looking at a couple dozen health-related high-level meetings since the first one happened in the early 2000s around HIV, which did set a bar for really stimulating a level of political tension that arguably has not waned in the global fight against HIV. That's almost like the gold standard, right? What could we have expected this year? It was difficult to think about a singular moment on a one specific issue this year when the world is grappling with so many. And the general debate that you heard last week when heads of state were individually speaking about things, you know, President Zelensky's in New York addressing the General Assembly for the first time since the Russian invasion as just one example, right? It's a crowded environment to try to set an expectation that a high-level meeting on a specific issue could be a capstone, could be the culminating moment, because there's just so many demands on leaders' time and attention. Process got in the way of ambition, this year in New York. And when member states are tasked with negotiating simultaneously nine outcome documents, and in the context of pandemics, only having really about seven months to do that between when the co-facilitators were appointed and when the text was adopted, that's not a lot of time to get 194 member states on the same page about something. So process got in the way of ambition here. And I think that is not an excuse, although it kind of sounds like one, but I do think is a really important contextual factor for then let's situate what the pandemic high-level meeting could do, right? It could have been a forum for member states to talk about both whole of society and whole of government preparedness and response capacities. I don't think member states did enough of that in their individual interventions from the floor. Many did talk about the effects of the COVID pandemic in particular on things like kids out of school, on things like debt distress, you know, on social protection schemes. They talked about hard-fought lessons there. Did they announce enough new solutions? Okay, so therefore we're going to do the following. I don't think they did enough of that. So that, I think, was a bit of a missed opportunity. I think the political declaration itself is kind of a symptom of the times where we are in both the process and the kind of challenge of such a fast process, but also a bit of the sign of times and where we are in the politics on some of the policymaking on these issues. There is a fair amount of bright space in between certain member states' positions on things like intellectual property, equitable access to countermeasures. It would have been too difficult to bridge that gap in this political declaration alone. We have a multi-year process going on in Geneva that member states are hugely attuned to. And that's the forum where they're wanting to negotiate that right now. They didn't want to do that in New York. They didn't want to either step on the toes of Geneva 
nor try to raise a new bar on that language in New York. That wasn't their job. So I do think that the context will matters a lot and how we then think about was this meeting on pandemics in New York last week successful or not. Right. And there was some talk about kind of letting the Geneva processes play out, let the negotiations play out and then see where they get to once a person said kicking it back to New York if it needs some help that way. So it seems like there is a lot of need to kind of see how those processes play out as well. A couple of impressions listening to you both and reading some of the coverage of this. You know, you made the point that there was a bit of overload, right? Nine processes. Sign of the times, but also you pay a price for overcommitting in those nine processes. You have acute geopolitical tensions at play, particularly with Russia and China. You had in the Security Council meeting, only one member of the P5 showed up which was U.S. You had pretty acute tensions between the global north and global south that played through all of this. And the U.N. itself, lots of questions around what does this tell us about its value or lack thereof in this moment when people are going to other processes to seek more collective action at a regional basis or in some other forum of a G7 or G20. So there was a lot of that sort of mixed together that kind of leaves you wondering, well, okay, what are we going to remember about this and not allowing ourselves to sink into a kind of cynicism about it. The advocates were extremely harsh, it seemed to me, in their criticisms of this. There wasn't a lot of consideration of, well, what are the valuable takeaways from these different meetings that are going to carry forward into the future? You've teased out, Kate, some of the common themes that have come forward around workforce and financing and the issues around manufacturing capacity and IP and things like that that are still to be debated out in Geneva. Nellie, what do you think the bigger picture means here in terms of the reputation and credibility of UN action and actions of this kind? Well, I mean, as Kate said, I think it's just kind of a sign of the times that so many issues that really need to be dealt with on the global level, climate change, pandemics, and we're so fractured. And a lot of things that came during the pandemic in terms of equity and north-south issues. So, I mean, I think we're farther apart than we definitely need to be to grapple with all these global issues that we're facing. And is there an entity that maybe the UN could pull together to talk about the summit of the future? I think they're talking about creating a platform like this, that where Countries can come together and we can deal with these issues without borders that are essentially existential crises for all of us. I think that'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years. Are we actually able to pull this together in some way and deal with this collectively? And I think it's going to be hard, but I think really the next couple of years will tell. I want to make sure we comment a bit about the U.S. engagement, because the Biden administration in this period has been pretty committed to uh, muscular multilateralism in many different ways. After, obviously, in the Trump administration, things moving in the opposite direction, a lot of anxiety around what our electoral cycle will generate in this next period. Kate, tell us a bit about the level of participation in these key meetings by senior ranks of the administration, and what was the Biden administration? trying to convey, would you say, in terms of its outlook? We're talking about the three health high-level meetings, but obviously there's another six and there's a whole bunch of other related things going on. But how do you characterize and grade the U.S. participation and contribution in this period? 
It's a great question. As the host country of the UN, the US president is always invited to speak very early in the opening of the general debate for High Level Week on Tuesday morning. And President Biden was there and gave his speech from the floor. He talked a couple of times about the Sustainable Development Goals before he talked about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I think that is an indicator of the level of importance that they're trying to signal in this U.S. administration to the global community about what they care about. He may have even mentioned the importance of a clean PEPFAR reauthorization before he mentioned the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It was in his speech, and I believe it was beforehand. But regardless, it's at least on par. And I think that's an important signal of what they're trying to convey to the global community. Because of what we understand to be some scheduling issues with Secretary Blinken's time, they registered his intention to speak at the pandemic high-level meeting to the end of the day. But unfortunately, the meeting had to close to speakers before they got to the U.S. So we didn't hear that intervention live, which I do think is regrettable that that's the way it panned out. But, you know, we heard Secretary Becerra and Atul Gawande as Deputy Administrator of USAID speak on UHC. We heard Assistant Secretary Lois Pace speak on tuberculosis. So they tried to show up and they tried to also show up in the kind of non-high level meeting context as well with, you know, new commitments on TB and the like. So I think they were trying and I think they understand the kind of reputational damage that sometimes happens with the ebb and flow of political change in Washington and how that is understood and received in the global community. For instance, in the UHC high-level meeting, they took time to speak about this administration's priority for sexual and reproductive health and rights, for the access for LGBTQIA communities to healthcare services of all stripes around the world. Those are signals that they're trying to send about a people-centered approach that is in contrast to the prior occupants of those roles in the last administration. Let's think ahead a bit now. The negotiations over the pandemic instrument are ongoing. They're problematic. They're fraught, but they're very important. The target is the spring of next year. Some of these deliberations, some of these process outcomes that we've been talking about across health and elsewhere are going to feed into that process in some form. We also have the antimicrobial resistance high-level meeting next fall. And so there's a question of what lessons come out of this year that are relevant and should be listened to in thinking about that meeting next fall. And as Nellie has pointed out, and you have pointed out, Kate, as well, we have the Summit for the Future coming up in 2024. Those are three, and they're not the only target areas where we should be thinking ahead and thinking, okay, what does all of this perhaps benefit or help in subtle ways or in incremental ways? These are the things that matter enormously. So let me start with Nellie. Nellie, how does this help us in looking ahead, in your view? The pandemic negotiations, AMR prep, Summit of the Future, and any other thing that matters here? Well, the three health meetings and the AMR meeting coming up, it raises the profile of these critical health issues as individual issues that need to be dealt with. So if they become topics then for something like the Summit of the Future, then they can be part of those talks as well. It just, it raises the profile of them. It signals importance to leaders and to the world as a whole, gets them on the agenda. Thank you. Kate, what are your thoughts on what carries forward out of last week's events into these very important future processes? 
I mean, I think we heard resoundingly in the pandemic high-level meeting, most member states talk specifically with kind of commitment to seeing through the pandemic accord negotiations. And I think that's important because, first of all, a lot of those negotiations are behind closed doors. So we hear too infrequently from member states, are they still in that game? Are they still going to push through to try to get something meaningful since we know the negotiations are in a pretty hard place, right? So hearing so many put themselves on the record, I think is a a bit of a wind in sails. It's a bit of a nudge. Right, and kind of a tool of mutual accountability and responsibility. This is hard, this is a slog, but we have to keep at it. And I think that's good. There were plenty of negotiators, pandemic accord negotiators from Capitol, from elsewhere who were physically in New York, taking advantage of bilaterals to have conversations with other countries or groups of countries around negotiating positions because they were getting into the hot and heavy period in the pandemic pandemic accord negotiations where they really have to start putting pen to paper and really manifesting what they want if they're going to meet a May 2024 deadline. So I think this was a building block, this moment of time, the chance to connect in a slightly different kind of flank of multilateralism on these issues was helpful to the process. The Summit for the Future in 2024 high-level meeting on antimicrobial resistance, which will take place in New York. We're also on people's minds and lips. First, that question is exactly the one that member states are asking. Steve, what did we learn from how this year worked or didn't work that we want to use to shape expectation setting, what success looks like? And how do we, you know, overcome some of the challenges of this year to have something really meaningful? And I think some of that still has to come out in the wash. I don't think there's clarity yet on what success can or should look like on either of those meetings, because member states are still like kind of live in their thinking and reflecting on what worked and didn't work. But I do think there were some lessons there. And on AMR in particular, I think we are hopeful that member states will be both concise, which I think was a a challenge this year. These political declarations on these three health-related high-level meetings were large. (laughs) Can they be concise? Can they actually be galvanizing into new forms of collective action? And AMR in particular, I think we see promise because that's what the last high-level meeting on AMR did, was it created new models. It created a new interagency coordinating group. It breathed life into the tripartite, now the quadripartite of UN agencies working on this issues. It called for and then yielded to a global leaders group chaired by Mia Motley, Uh, Prime Minister from Barbados on, you know, to keep political attention high on these issues. That's a high level meeting working, right? And so I do think there's hope that the next year's AMR high level meeting can do that while also being mindful of those, especially in the context of both tuberculosis and pandemics, the synergies, the policy synergies that can be enhanced. Multidrug resistant tuberculosis, highly related to you know, the global fight against antimicrobial resistance generally, you know, and on pandemics, issues like surveillance, issues like laboratory capacity, financing, those are all issues that I think need policy coherence between the AMR and pandemic communities that next year's high-level meeting could yield some opportunity to do that. Yes. I want to turn to Nellie to ask a question around high-level participation. It was notable 
in several of these meetings where the presence of high-level state leadership was pretty thin. Maybe that's not so surprising, but I wanted to turn the question around, okay, against that backdrop, who emerged as the most dynamic and engaged country or institution in this process? I mean, WHO and the World Bank were very much there, fully present and engaged at senior levels. And we haven't talked about that. There's certain countries, too, that made a point of really stepping forward to take advantage of this moment, even while very few other countries at very high levels chose to come. So let's turn that around a little bit. Nellie, what did you observe? Well, and then there was Helen Clark, who was the the former co-chair of the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response. She spoke at the plenary, has been a strong voice for a high-level, multi-sectoral board at the UN level on pandemic preparedness. She was definitely a strong voice. PAN, the Pandemic Action Network, as a civil society group, was very present and had some great sessions related to pandemic preparedness with good turnout. So I would say those groups in particular and the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board was also there, just in terms of some of the extra governmental organizations. Those were some of the ones that stuck out to me. Yeah. Kate, what can you say about sort of the leadership by World Bank, WHO, but also individual states that went a little extra distance to really take advantage of this moment? I think as a block, members of the African Union kind of went above and beyond as kind of a really heavy message through the week. We saw several African heads of state there. They also were very strategic in using their side meetings to advance policy priorities like diversified regional manufacturing capacity across the continent. I think they used their time well. The Africa Group and member states of the African Union last week in New York, and I think some of the kind of priority that they placed on negotiating these outcome documents as a block shown through in some of the kind of final text. And I think they did a good job of that. And they're obviously doing the same negotiating as a block in the pandemic accord negotiations. So that was kind of a resounding signal that came through. Now Cuba leads the G77 plus China, and they really punched hard over the past week on a range of issues from the SDG summit to the ministerial for the summit for the future to the health related high level meetings, taking that role that they have very seriously. And I do think that's a political dynamic that will need to continue to be watched because I think it will have a high influence over the next year on what success looks like either in Geneva or in New York. It's a pretty bold style of leadership and engagement that we're seeing out of them. It's interesting that the reference to China is the first time we've talked about China. Where was China in the course of all of this? China was not as visible in New York as they sometimes are, although the COVID pandemic made it hard to kind of assess against a recent baseline of how senior their delegation is. But as you already noted or inferred, I guess, uh, China's a member of the P5, but was not present at the heads of state and government level in New York. So, you know, I think they're playing their cards differently. It's clear I mean, at the APEC summit in August in Seattle, the Chinese sent a pretty mid-level delegation. They participated. There was nothing particularly notable. They showed up, but not at senior levels. Nothing particularly notable communicated. Is that kind of how you would characterize the Chinese presence at UNGA? Yeah. As colleagues of mine who lead on our climate policy work note, the 
government of China often chooses the General Assembly to set the stage on their climate priorities, ambitions, actions for the coming year. They purposefully do it a handful of weeks before the COP meets. They chose not to do that this year. So yeah, clearly they've got a different kind of approach in how they're using a moment like last week. Okay. We've gotten towards the end here. We try and end all of these conversations on a positive note by asking each of our guests to tell us what gives you the greatest hope and optimism coming out of last week. Over to you, Nellie. You get to kick this off. Yeah, well, I think it's concerning that on a personal level in the U.S., but also at the global level, that there's not more understanding among just kind of the general population that we need to really kind of prepare for these pandemics and we aren't doing it. So the pandemic in media that people talk about, but also pandemic fatigue, we really need to get over that. And we really need to figure out how to generate broad-based support for pandemic preparedness. It seems kind of, okay, well, how do you do that? I don't know if at the UN level, if you could have a higher level multisexual body that could kind of pull that all together, if that would generate some, I don't really know what it's going to take, but it seems like it's going to be hard for it to come out of the Geneva processes. But again, you know, maybe that that will be a surprise. Um, but also at the U.S. level with the new White House Office on Pandemic Preparedness Policy, can that serve as a hub for pulling businesses together that might want to figure out how to protect their customers and also their workers for schools, for indoor air, for things like that? There's a lot of things that could be done that would be sort of generally helpful for health for all of us, but also contribute to pandemic preparedness that are way beyond the health sector. I don't know what it will take to sort of spark that. Hopefully going down the line as people kind of move through some of this, they'll get back to it and start thinking more along those lines. Or maybe the summit of the future will be a galvanizing point. It seems like there needs to be something to galvanize a broader approach to pandemic preparedness than we're getting now. Thank you. Kate, what are the most positive takeaways for you from this? What gives you the greatest hope and optimism? Sometimes when you're asked for a point of optimism in the context of intergovernmental negotiations, it's helpful to take a long range view. Um, and I think relative to, say, 2019 and what conversation was like around issues related to pandemics, tuberculosis or UHC, right? We did not hear what we heard this week related to a couple of key places. One is the health workforce. I mean, that was overwhelmingly, right? Heads of state, ministries of health, civil society is clearly, you know, understood the imperative of a strong health workforce and investing in a strong health workforce. So that is a tonal shift that I think just, you know, is a clear sign of momentum. We heard a lot more this week on the impacts of a changing climate and the climate crisis on health and the imperative of thinking outside of just sectoral boxes and pushing for united action. And we heard a lot more with more assertive voices. We talked about this already today about equity. Equity was front and center. Equity across regions, inside countries. Then I think we heard people would speak to it, maybe even a Pollyannish way in the early SDG era, but it was really deep in the conversations this past week. And I think those are kind of tonal shifts that are signs of progress, signs of some of these issues really breaking through and new floors being set that hopefully can't be, you know, receded going forward. Those are great closing remarks. And thank you both for taking the time out today to share a really rich set of insights on what happened last week. And we're really grateful to you. So thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Nellie. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.